So we're uh, in the last week of Jesus' life. Um, we've learned that Jesus is, uh, along with hundreds, thousands of pilgrims, Jewish pilgrims, um, descending upon Jerusalem for Passover. And we're also reading how Jesus, uh, as Passover is approaching every day, uh, he's in the temple courts and kind of holding court. You know, everybody's just flocking to him and wanting to sit at his feet. Uh, and, and through all of this, a massive collision is taking place. And you could say, in, in one sense, Jesus is inciting it. I mean, it starts with, with Jesus' entrance into Jerusalem, how he uh, comes in on that donkey. I mean, I think him riding down that hill on, on the colt of a donkey, like this. I mean, literally, like, this is what he's riding on. But it's a messianic prophecy that this is how the Messiah is going to come to you. Um, him riding on that little ass, for lack of a better word, I think is his boldest statement about who he is. He's declaring that he is the Messiah, the Christ. And then, of course, the next day he enters the temple and he acts like he owns the place. He calls it my, my house. And I think it's worth asking, like, who is Jesus colliding with? It's not Romans. It's not even really the Jews per se. Chapter 12, what we're in, verse 12, 17, 37, they are sitting at his feet, hanging on his every word he has to say, taking delight in the things that he has to say. It's a collision with the spiritual leadership of Israel. Jesus is colliding with the most religious spiritual people of his day. That's something for us to think about. And so really in this whole chapter, Mark chapter 12, Jesus is pretty much on trial. The religious leaders are, are coming to him, uh, trying to interrogate him, hoping that Jesus is gonna say something that's gonna incriminate himself. Today's text, it's a Torah teacher, Mark chapter 12, starting with verse 28. We love to stand for the reading of God's word. So let's do that. One of the teachers of the law, one of the Torah teachers came and heard them debating, noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer. He asked Jesus, of all the commandments, which is the most important? Is that a question you'd ask Jesus? Jesus answers, the most important one is this. Shema Israel, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Ahad. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And a second is like it, as he says it in another place. Love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. And the Torah teacher said, well said, Rabbi. You are right in saying that God is one and there is no one but him and to love him with all your heart and all your understanding, your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself is more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices 
And when Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to the Torah teacher, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And from then on, no one dared ask Jesus any more questions. But now it's Jesus' turn. While Jesus was teaching the temple courts, he asked them a question. Why do the Torah teachers say that the Messiah is the son of David? David himself, speaking by the Holy Spirit, declared, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand and I will put your enemies under your feet. David himself, who's writing this Psalm, calls him Lord. How then can he be his son? And the large crowd listened to him with delight. This is God's word. You can be seated. Uh, so our, our text says that a teacher of a law, a Torah teacher, uh, comes to Jesus. Um, let's begin with, with who these teachers of the law, these Torah teachers are. Um, they are essentially the pastors of their day. And they're Pharisees. Torah teachers, the rabbis are, are, the, are the Pharisees. So if you were here last week, uh, we learned that the Sadducees are the priests who run the temple. Uh, the Pharisees are then the pastors who run the synagogue. And I know sometimes there's just confusion, which rightly so, between temple and synagogue. What I want you to know is that temple and synagogue are not the same. There's one temple, uh, which is in Jerusalem, but there are synagogues in every town and village uh, where where the Jewish people live. And so uh, in in their mind, the, the temple is the actual place where God lives, which is why they call it the house, it's, it, it's where God's holy of holies, his living room, where, where, where God dwells. And of course, the psalmist says it so well, who may ascend to, to this holy hill? Who can uh, draw near to this holy God? But he or she who has clean hands and a pure heart. And so this is why you, you come to temple with, with your lamb. This is, this is how you draw near to God. And this is what is done in the temple. But the synagogue is where God lives in his word. It's where God's people gather around God's Torah, where they can have their lives, their identities, their callings shaped by the word of God. Now, if you know the biblical story, throughout the biblical story, uh, what we would call our Old Testament synagogue does not exist. It's not there. It only shows up in our New Testament uh, because all worship and expression that God instructs is, is at the temple, through the temple, through the people who run the temple. But what happens when the temple's destroyed? What happens when God's people then are exiled hundreds of miles away from the very place that God instructs worship? And this then became the question, when they're in exile, how how do we worship? How do we draw near to God? No temple, no place of sacrifice. So they looked at the Bible and, and, and they saw many texts uh, like, like the ones I'm going to read, Psalm 51, which is David's confession to God after uh, his sin of adultery and murder. Uh, David, at the end of the psalm, says, God, you do not delight in sacrifice, or I bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O oh God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. So this what David is saying is, God, God, it's not the sacrifice that you want. It's, it's, it's my heart that you want. Uh, Jeremiah 7, um, 
God says, for when I brought your ancestors out of Egypt and I spoke to them, I did not just give them commands about burnt offerings and sacrifices. I gave them this command, obey me, obey me. Obey me and I will be your God and you'll be my people. Walk in obedience to all that I command you that it may go well, well with you. Or Micah 6, uh, a verse that we know, but we oftentimes don't read the verses leading up to verse 8. But it, it goes like this, with what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings with my lamb with, or with a calf a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams? No, he has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. And so from this, they concluded that to obey God is better than sacrifice. Sometimes I, I, I've thought about just standing up here and preaching a two-word sermon. Obey God. I'll see you next week. <laughs> <laughs> but, but this is where uh, the, the, the whole thing shifted. And, and so... Um, their relationship with God shifted from making sacrifice to obedience, from temple to Torah, and God's word actually became the holy of holies. And it's in this context in which the synagogue is birthed so that by the time you get to Jesus, every village has a synagogue. By the time you get to the book of Acts, Paul can go into any city in the Roman Empire and find a synagogue. But now what happens when God's people are actually allowed to return to Jerusalem and rebuild God's house? And that's the story of Nehemiah and Ezra in our Old Testament. Well, they do that. So by the time of Jesus, what you have are two expressions of worship going on. You have the temple worship run by the Sadducees, and you have the synagogue, which is run by the Pharisees, and in this, you can imagine the Sadducees and the Pharisees are competing with one another. They had a very conflictual relationship because they were both seeking the power to influence. And of course, the Sadducees used the temple and their relationship with Rome to exercise influence and power. The Pharisees used the synagogue and what they would call their superior understanding of the text and their superior walking out of the text as influence. But here's what I want you to know, that, that when Jesus then shows up the last week and when he cleanses the temple, those, those Pharisees are just cheering Jesus on. They're like, yes. And when Jesus tells the parable of the vineyard, they're probably saying amen to everything Jesus is saying because they know that Jesus is indicting the Sadducees because the Sadducees are the ones that God entrusted his vineyard to. The Pharisees love Jesus' answer about paying taxes to Caesar. They're pacifists. And they especially loved uh, Jesus' answer to the Sadducees on the issue of the resurrection, the afterlife, because like Jesus, they believed in it. So I think that this Pharisee, this Torah teacher, comes to Jesus with a question to find out, Jesus, are you actually with us? 
And I think it's very easy for a lot of us to just kind of label this guy as a hypocrite or a legalist. But let's remember that at the core of a, of a Pharisee is, is someone who has a deep passion to know God. They want to live wholeheartedly for God. They want to learn God's Torah so they can obey God's Torah and therefore experience the kingdom of heaven. Oh, they want the kingdom of heaven. And that's why Jesus says to this man at the end, Dude, you are not far from the kingdom of heaven because Jesus knows exactly what this guy is after. He knows that this guy wants nothing more than the kingdom of God to break out in his life. This has to be a spot for a commercial because Crossroads in the last year has done a lot of hard work on its vision, mission, and values. And uh, again, we did not like change anything massively where we've become a different church. Um, but we have reworded some things and, and vision is the, is the actual thing that, that defines what, what an entity is going for, uh, why an entity exists. And the vision of this church is the kingdom of heaven. That's why we exist. That's what we're going for. That's what we're seeking. Uh, and, and hopefully, as I, as I say this, this is creating some curiosity amongst all of us. Like, okay, then what is... What is the king, kingdom of heaven? And, you know, we've been in Mark's gospel for a long time. Um, a couple of things that we should know by now is that the kingdom of heaven is, is the message that Jesus preached. The kingdom of heaven is also at the heart of his ministry. In fact, anytime uh, you see in the gospels uh, words even like eternal life and being saved, these are all synonyms for the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. And these are, are, are what I believe to be the three defining characteristics of the kingdom, if, if, if you're going to bring definition to it. The first characteristic of the kingdom of heaven is, is in, in, in its most basic sense, it is the power of God. Sometimes we refer to it as the finger of God. It is the finger of God that breaks into chaos in all its forms and brings shalom. Shalom, shalom. And think about Mark's gospel. The lame walk, the blind see, the dead are raised, the demonized are set free, the sinner is forgiven. That's the kingdom of heaven, the finger of God, breaking into chaos, bringing shalom. So when Jesus in the gospels are, are talking about the kingdom of heaven, they're not referring to a future world or a future life in a future world. The kingdom of heaven is about experiencing life in a whole new dimension right now. It's peace with God. It's the shalom of God in this life. And of course, the kingdom of heaven is going to restore us to everlasting life. So that's the first characteristic of the kingdom of heaven. It's the power of God that breaks into chaos, bringing shalom. Second characteristic of the kingdom of heaven uh, it breaks in when people fall at Jesus' feet and declare him to be Lord. 
I mean, think about all those times in Mark's gospel when, when, when people are forgiven, when people are healed, when people are restored and set free. There is always someone bowed at Jesus' feet declaring Jesus to be Lord. This is how the kingdom of heaven is ignited in our lives when we fall asleep and just declare him to be the Lord of our lives. The third, king, the third characteristic of the kingdom of heaven, the way that the kingdom of heaven then is, is, is manifested um, in our lives is through obedience to God. It's when people learn God's path and they walk it, and when they do this, the kingdom of heaven breaks in and breaks out. So let me ask, is the kingdom of heaven breaking into your life? Is it breaking into the life of this church? Is it breaking out of this church? Are we experiencing the finger of God? Is his power at work in us, restoring, reconciling, healing, forgiving? Are we bowed? Are we bowed in humble desperation at the feet of Jesus declaring him to be Lord? And are we a people who have a passion in our hearts to obey God? Have we found God's path? And, and, and are we wholeheartedly walking it? See, this is what this guy is seeking. This is what this guy's life is about. And it's the reason why he asked Jesus what commandment is the most important. He wants the kingdom. And he knows it comes through wholehearted obedience. Now, their Bible what we would call the Old Testament. Uh, yes, it contains the 10 commandments, but they didn't stop there. The, these Torah teachers looked at all the commands of God that were found uh, in, in, throughout the book and they identified 613 commandments in the Torah. And, and, and because you know, life sometimes presents these situations where you, you have to almost break this command to keep this command and you're, and you're left with a choice, I think, Sabbath is one of those examples, especially for the Jews in the first century. Um, you know, Sabbath is the command to rest on the seventh day, but then uh, what if uh, someone is in great need and needs help? Do you, do you leave your rest and work to help? And, and, and so in this, uh, the question then became, amongst all these commandments, is there a greatest, is there one core commandment, a greatest commandment through which all the other commands of God could best be understood? And that's the debate of Jesus' day. That's the question on the table. And Jesus answers the question by going to the most known most memorized, most prayed text in the Torah, the thing in their, in their book that comes out of their mouth more often. It's what the Jews to this day call Shema. Every Jew in Jesus' day knew Shema. It's the guts of the Jewish faith. Shema Israel, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Ahad. It's, it, it, it's what's said uh, every morning. It's what's said at the end of every day. And this goes back all the way to the time of Jesus. I can promise you Jesus woke up and 
said Shema, and he ended his day saying Shema. Now, the word Shema simply means to hear. Hear, O Israel. Now, remember, there are two aspects. We've seen this in Mark's gospel, to hearing. This is why Jesus says, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. So Shema doesn't just mean to hear something with our ears, but then it means it's gonna change how we live. It means to obey. Now, what does it mean to obey God? According to Shema, it's to love God with all my heart, which is all that I am, to love God with all my soul, which is my very life, even it costs me my life. And it's to love God with all my might or all my strength. The word for might or strength in the Hebrew is meadeha. It means with all your muchness, everything else that God has thrown upon your life, all your wealth, your time, your talent. Love God with absolutely everything you have. That's Jesus' answer. That's the greatest command. But Jesus adds a, 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 another piece to this. He says, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And for the longest time, I just kind of thought this is Jesus putting his mark on the greatest commandment until I uh, discovered, no, actually, uh, he's quoting uh, one of those commands, one of those 613 commands. It's in Leviticus 19, verse 18. In fact, the interesting thing about Leviticus 19, verse 18, where it says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself or who is like yourself um, with Shema Deuteronomy 6, verse 5, you shall love God with your whole heart, soul, mind, and strength. These two verses both share a unique word. That's only found in these two verses. It's the Hebrew word ve'ahavta, which means you shall love. That, that word is, is maybe found only one other place in Torah. And so what the Torah teachers did is when, when they saw uh, something like this in the text where a word is only used just a couple of times or a few times, they would join all of these ideas together and they would let them inform each other. So in this case, going back already to the time of Jesus, the rabbis are already teaching that love your neighbor as yourself is actually commentary on how we love God with our whole heart, mind, and strength. That they are one and the same. That my vertical love with God is one in the same with my horizontal love of neighbor. That you can't separate them. And Jesus is in full agreement with this thinking when he says, yep, and a second is like it. Or better translated, a second is the same as that to love God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength is the same as loving our neighbor as ourself. To reflect on that just a little bit, we're gonna realize this has massive implications. It means that the way that we actually love God is by loving our neighbor. 
And then again, this explains too why that became a big discussion in Jesus' day. If, 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 if loving God is the way, then who's my neighbor? We're not going to go down that rabbit trail right now, uh, but you can have fun with it in Luke 10. But see, I think so many Christians today uh, think that, that they love God most when they go on retreats so or they get alone with God. And, and, and it's not to say that these things aren't important, but it's not what Jesus is saying, how we most love God. Jesus is actually saying we most love God when we love our neighbor. And I, I think there's even something that we have to think about in, in, when the Bible it, it doesn't call us to love humanity. It calls us to love our neighbor. It's easy to love humanity. <laughs> oh, I love humanity. No, the Bible actually says, no, love the person next to you, love the person in front of you, love the people that you do life with, love the people that you interact, it, act, interact with, love every person that your eyes set themselves on. Love your neighbor. And see, I, 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 I think this is why the prophets so often let Israel have it. Several of them just talk about this. They're like, God is sick and tired of your worship services, your gatherings. He's sick and tired of your, 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 your prayers, your fasting. He's sick and tired of all this because you're not doing this. You're not concerned for the widow and the orphan and the oppressed, and you're not... Uh, treating your spouse the right way. And this is why Jesus too in, in the Sermon on the Mount says, you know, leave, leave your sacrifice on the altar. That's, that's this. And go make things first right with your brother. Listen to what the apostle Paul says. He says this in Galatians 5 verse 14. He says this in Romans 13. Paul says the entire law is fulfilled by this one commandment. Love your neighbor as yourself. So if you want to know what it means to obey God, it's Shema. And if you want to know what Shema is, it's loving God with everything we have, starting with how we love our neighbors. Do you love God? Do you love him? This is how the kingdom of heaven will break in and break out. That's what's at stake here. Now Jesus turns the tables. He becomes the questioner. I'm sure at this point in the game, you can tell from our text, um, well, it says in verse 30, 35, it says, while Jesus was teaching the temple courts, I can just picture now the crowds have really gathered and they're flocking around him. And Jesus now, in a sense, goes on the offense and he gives his audience a question. Actually, it's a riddle. The riddle is, whose son is the Messiah? Now, <laughs> to, to, to us today, you know, we, 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 we might not know the answer to that question, um, but, but to a first century Jew, they all know the answer to this question. That's, this is such an obvious the answer to a question of whose son is the Messiah um, to every first century Jew, they knew that the Messiah would be from the line of David. It would be David's son. But all Jesus is doing, it, first of all, with this question, he's just setting the table, okay? He's establishing the fact Messiah is going, 
is, is, is going to be a descendant, a son, a grandson, a great-great-grandson of David. Then Jesus goes to what would be one of the most loved psalms of his day. It's a psalm that every Jewish person knew uh, because it is pregnant with the hope of Messiah. And this psalm is a psalm of David, and it's right here. Jesus is quoting it. It begins with, the Lord said to my Lord. And already it feels like a riddle. Like, what do you mean? The Lord said to my Lord. But this might help you a little bit if I give you the original language. In the original language, um, it's Yahweh said to my Adoni. Yahweh is the name of God. So God said to my Lord, and then if you know this psalm, this psalm is a psalm about the Messiah. So the Lord there is the Messiah. This is a psalm about God speaking to the Messiah to come and declaring who this Messiah will be. And here you have uh, Jesus referring to this psalm written by David. You could say David is Israel's ultimate king, and in this psalm, its ultimate king is looking into the future to Messiah and calling that Messiah, my Lord. He's looking up to this future king. So in light of this table that Jesus has set, here is the question, how can David's Lord be David's son? And here's the logical answer to this question. David's son can only be David's Lord if he is God's son. I don't know if you've caught that. But that is why this particular psalm is the most quoted Old Testament text in the New Testament 32 times. Jesus being the first to refer to it, he's using this riddle to correct their misconceptions about Messiah. They were so dialed in to the fact that Messiah would be this descendant of David, a mere human being, that they forgot that David's son would also be David's Lord, David's God. And now Jesus, too, in a sense, just answered a an earlier question, on what authority are you doing these things? Uh, I'm doing these things on the authority of, I am son of David. I am David's Lord. I am David's God. That's the authority. And I don't know when, if these guys gulped, I don't know if the, the hair just stood on the back of their necks, but here's the deal. If, if, if Jesus is truly David's Messiah, David's Lord, David's God. If you know what the rest of this psalm says about who Messiah is, all declared to the voice of God, and God says to my Messiah, sit at my right hand. You're the person at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Look at these verses in, in, in uh, a little bit later, the Lord will extend your mighty scepter from Zion, which is Jerusalem, saying, rule in the midst of your enemies. The Lord is at your right hand. He will crush kings on the day of his wrath. 
This one will judge the nations, heaping up the dead, crushing the rulers, the whole earth. And then right in the middle, as God is declaring all these things about Messiah, he says, and you will be a priest in the order of Melchizedek. Now I lost you. (laughs) But there's great significance to this that the Messiah will not just be the king to all, end all kings. It's gonna be a priest. Let me ask an existential question that I think gets at the significance of, of this Messiah being a priest. What do you look like? I think we all walk around with this uh, mental image of what we look like both to ourselves and to other people. And if we're all honest, we all want to appear a certain way. I think social media seems to support this. Think about how hard people sometimes uh, work just just to get the right picture uh, that they can then present through social media. Remember uh, a couple years ago, Libby and I were in Rome and we were scouting out for a trip and we were having a cup of coffee in front of the Coliseum. And yeah, I did lose my mind a little bit because I literally watched uh, these, these two girls. One was taking the picture and the other was posing in front of uh, the Coliseum. I didn't just do that, did I? <laughs> oh gosh, okay. Um, <laughs> it's still, it's still, but literally, 30 pictures, I promise you. They took 30 pictures. They could, I mean, she just wanted it to be perfect. Um, and uh, anyway. But listen, uh, we, we are a culture today that is obsessed with how we look, and I, this even extends to, to how we look, um, not just physically, but, our, but our morally, spiritually. We all have a moral and spiritual image of ourselves. We have this idea about how we look. Are we, are we morally and spiritually attractive? Are we morally and spiritually unattractive? Some of us might right now even feel morally and spiritually ugly. But what do you look like to God? Right now, if you stood in his presence and, and God cast his eyes upon you, what would he see? And would you feel beautiful? Would you feel ugly? See, this is precisely why the ancients said we need a priest because they understood all their ugly, especially when it came to God. And and with worship being this this is where we go to God's house and, and we stand before God in God's pre, uh, presence. It was a priest's uh, profession then to deal with all of that ugly, to wash us, to make us clean, to make us presentable, to approach a holy God. So David writing Psalm 110 and inserting Melchizedek, like uh, this, is, this is what I see happening. 
I see him making his own personal copy of Torah because this is what God instructed all the kings to do. They had to have their own copy of Torah. And I see as he's copying it, he gets to Genesis chapter four and, and, and he's writing all this down where Abraham just defeated the four kings from the east. And, and then on, on his return, uh, because in, in essence, you can say, wow, Abraham defeating all those four kings. Abraham is now the greatest, the greatest man, the greatest king in the world. But, but on his return home, Abraham encounters one still greater. David must be thinking to himself, wow, as great as Abraham was, there's one still greater than Abraham, one so great that it actually caused Abraham to bow and worship this one greater. And this begins where you start wondering who is this mysterious figure named Melchizedek who descends from God's holy city, Jerusalem, who's described in this text as a priest of the most God and who blesses Abraham the same way God has been blessing Abraham and who prays to Abraham's God. Our New Testament answers the question who this mysterious figure is. The book of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter seven says this Melchizedek was king of Salem. Salem is the ancient word for Jerusalem. And he's priest of God most high. So he's king and priest of God most high. He met Abraham when he was returning from the defeat of the kings and he blessed him and Abraham gave a 10th of everything he had to him. That's an act of worship. And first, the name Melchizedek means king of righteousness. Melech is king, Zedek is righteousness. So it's not even his name, it's the title. King of righteousness. And also king of Salem means Salem is second part of Jerusalem, which Shalom, it means the king of Shalom. Without father or mother, without genealogy, without beginning of days or end of life, made like the son of God, he remains a priest forever. Mystery salt. This Melchizedek, who comes out to meet Abraham, is not a mere mortal. It's Christ, the king of God's eternal city who descends into that valley to come face to face with Abraham. And I think what an encounter at this stage in the biblical story. And what you have God doing right at the beginning is he's showing Abraham, do you wanna know how I'm gonna fix this broken world? Do you know how I'm gonna fix your broken life, your broken family? Meet this man, meet Melchizedek this king of righteousness. And you know what this king of righteousness does before they say goodbye? Is he offers Abraham wine and bread. Already strong hints of how this priestly king, this kingly priest will redeem and restore the whole world. He will offer the world a table, a Eucharist, a supper of bread and wine. And if you're saying so, It might be because you have listened to the lies of our modern world that says we are pretty good people who live in a pretty good world. And if any little problem flares up, it's nothing that we can't solve, our own smarts and our own capabilities. People just start thinking that if we just elect the right politicians, get the economy fixed, find the right job, marry the right person, live in the right neighborhood, have the right education, that everything is just gonna be all right. 
Our problems are a lot bigger than that. They are a lot deeper than that. Our world is broken in every way. And we don't just need a king who will defeat evil. Because as we have learning, we have been kicked out. We have been banished from Eden. We are living now in an environment which we weren't made to live. We were made for God to walk with the holy. The only way back into God, the only way back into his garden, we absolutely need a priest who can wash away all of our unclean and bring us home. Isaiah 64 says, all of us, not some of us, all of us have become unclean. And it even pushes it further. It says, all of our righteous acts, think of the best things you've done, are nothing but filthy rags. In other words, left to ourselves, we could never get back into the garden of the Lord. We could never ascend God's holy hill. We are too defiled. And I think so many people today, they, they, they think they can cleanse themselves. They, they live their lives uh, trying to wash themselves. I think this is the danger of religion. Religion is, is what I perform and give to God. God, have I done enough? Do you like me now? And see what religion does, it makes us think we're a whole lot better than we actually are. I'll put politics in this category because politics today has become religion. Somehow we think that if we just belong to the right party and have all the right ideas and the right positions on the right cultural and political issues of our day, that somehow that's going to wash me and make me clean. I mean, look at all the yard signs. Look at all the blogging. It's people trying to wash. This is a danger of wealth, of money, of 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 having fancy houses uh, in fancy neighborhoods with fancy cars and fancy clothes, fancy vacations. We think it covers our stains. It's a danger of social media. Get off it. Serious. What do we use it for? We we, we use it to, to, to cover ourselves, to dress up our image to make us think we're something we're not, to make others think we're something we're not. It's a danger of winning. It's the danger of, of climbing the ladder and trying to make it to the top. It's the danger of success. It's a danger of fame or popularity in any of its forms. We just start thinking we get enough of it that we're, we're clean. And these are all the different ways that people wash today, trying to make themselves clean. We can't clean ourselves. We need a priest, and the message of the Bible is that we have one. We have a king of righteousness who is, throughout this whole book, who comes to remove the stains, the filth, the ugly. Remember the demoniac in Mark chapter 5, this man who's so filled with demons, just drenched, soaked in all this unclean until the kingdom of heaven, the finger of God breaks into his life. God, Jesus touches him. All that chaos is turned into shalom. And I love that part when the villagers came out to see this man, they saw a man bowed, bowed at Jesus' feet. And in his right mind, made new. 
and he was glow. This is what Christ does. He removes all the filth, the dirt, the stains. Isaiah 61, verse 10 says, I delight greatly in the Lord. My soul rejoices in my God, for God has clothed me with garments of salvation, and he has arrayed me in a robe of his righteousness. For as a bridegroom adorns his head like a priest, and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. And here's the picture here. God isn't just gonna forgive us. God's gonna make us beautiful. Like our wedding. He's gonna dress us in his righteousness. And how did the king of righteousness do this? Well, think about that bread and that wine that Melchizedek offered Abraham. That bread is his body broken. And that wine is his bloodshed. On the cross, Christ, the ultimate beauty, the all-glorious one, became ugly. He took on all of our ugly. And so ugly he became, as Isaiah said, he was so marred that men had to literally hide their faces because he gave up all his glory, he gave up all his beauty to make us beautiful and glorious. Paul says, he who knew no sin became sin, became our sin so that we could become the righteousness of God. And that king of righteousness still invites us to his table. He still offers us the same meal, the bread, the wine. It's not just to, just to forgive us as great as that is, but it's to make us beautiful. So this morning, the table is set and the food is offered, the food that Jesus offers. And he invites us, he says, come, come bring it to me. And it's at this place where, where, where Jesus was made ugly that we get his glory and his righteousness and his beauty. But the way that we come to this, the way for the power of God to break in and break out of our lives, is we come to this table declaring Jesus to be Lord. And we leave this table saying, God, with everything I have, I love you. I live for you. Obey you. So God, in this, in this time, in this space right now, God, your cross is set before us through this table where you offer us the meal. It's more than just food. It's the love of God. It's the power of God that can break into our lives to heal us, to restore us, to wash us, to redeem us. Forgive us. Make us stunningly beautiful. So, Lord, we bow. And our hearts are desperate. And our hearts right now confess you, Jesus, as Lord. And we fall at 